0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 176th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anja Grossman. Everyone calls me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We're the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand. Today, we are joined by Kevin Sorbo, who needs very little introduction. Uh, I want to Though remind you to go ahead. You can type in your questions to Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. We'll try to get to a couple of them, but we are going to have a bit of an uh, abbreviated program today. Kevin has already done, I think, 11 interviews today, and I don't know how many thousands over the past five weeks. Uh, so he's got a commitment after this. So we are just going to dive almost right into it. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about why he is here with us today. Of course all of you know him um, as an actor, a producer, director, famous for his starring roles in uh, Hercules the Legendary Journeys and Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. He's also the author of several books including True Strength, My Journey from Hercules to Mere Mortal, uh, and How Nearly Dying Saved My, la- my Life, and also, uh, more recently, he came out with a children's book, The Test of Lionhood. Uh, he is here, however, to talk about his new um, independent film produced with his wife, Sam Sorvo, The Miracle Uh, In East Texas, it's about to be released uh, across theaters nationwide this weekend. I see it's playing nearby. I plan to go, and so should you. So, Kevin, uh, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. It's been a while.
0: I know. Um, All right. So we met through your wife, Sam, who's spoken at our conferences, MC'd at our galas, was among the first guests of this podcast. Part of the bond that Sam and I shared is our mutual appreciation for the literature of, Ayn Rand. Wondering if you've read any of Rand's work and whether her ideas had any impact on you.
1: Um, yeah, I read them years ago, and I thought I thought it was pretty interesting. It's pretty and pretty um, predicting what was going to happen down the road as well. And, and we're kind of living in that world uh, as as we speak. I mean, if someone told me five years ago we would be where we are with this woke thing and cancel culture and hatred and anger, divisiveness in in this country, I would have, I would have said, come on, I can't get that bad, but it was starting to get bad 20, 30 years ago. It's just accelerated on itself now. And it's just amazing that we are, we're, we're at, I look what's going on in Israel right now. I look at, uh, the, the protests going on our college campuses. And the, I'm just wondering if these college students have any real history uh, under, of understanding the history of what happened in that land area. But that's a whole other subject. I'd rather talk about my movie.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, but before diving into your new film, I wanted to spend just a beat on your memoir, True sure. Strength, the audio version of which I cannot recommend enough. Of course, it's narrated by you and your wife. Sam. Uh, In it, you recount the near-death experience of the aneurysm that you had in your shoulder, which resulted in three strokes and the just bone-crushingly arduous journey to recovery. Um, Anyone dealing with a life-threatening illness or a debilitating injury should read it, Uh, though those who know you uh, from your film career might not be aware of your struggle. What did these experiences teach you?
1: Well, um, I, I, quickly how it all happened I was on the season five of Hercules. We're just wrapping up the season, and uh, I was having all kinds of problems with my left shoulder. My hand was cold and numb. I couldn't figure what was going on with my left arm. It was weird. My ego, you know, I was doing my own stunts because my ego said that I could, and I enjoyed doing them. And I was always getting cuts and bumps and bruises, sprains, whatever. So I just kind of blew it off. I flew back to America and it just did publicity on my first big budget movie called Call the Conqueror, and. I got to a point that I had to go see my doctor. They found a lump way up here before they could do anything about it. Um, it, it it basically opened up and sent hundreds of clots down to my arm, but it's actually four strokes because the speech went as well, but that one dissolved rather quickly. Thank God. But I spent the next four months learning how to walk and balance again. It took me three years to fully recover uh, to get past all the things that had going on, um, Uh, vertigo, loss of sight, uh, loss of of balance, um, all kinds of issues were going on with it. And I didn't want to write the book. My wife kind of made me write it. It was years later. Um, It's the guy's ego, right? You don't want to show how weak you become. I'm here. I'm playing Hercules. I'm 6'3". I'm 225 pounds. I'm ripped up, you know, 32-inch waist, 46-inch chest. And I'm like, I feel like I'm on top of the world, invincible. And sure enough, I, I have this thing happen to me. So um, it was, it was a, it was a tough road to go, go through, but I wrote the book and I'm grateful that I wrote it now because not only was it therapeutic for me, but when I started the book signing on it, I had people from all walks of life come to the Barnes and Nobles, all these book signings they did across the country. And they would be like, I read your book, 20 years old, 80 years old, whatever it may be there, car crash survivors, cancer survivors, stroke survivors, whatever it may be. Your book made me stop feeling sorry for myself. Your book made me laugh. The book made me appreciate that the life is still here in front of me. And it's up to me to get past this roadblock that I've hit because everybody's got a story. I don't sit and say my story is better than anybody else's. We're all going to hit roadblocks in our life. How do you react to those roadblocks? You want to blame God, a God you don't believe believe in. You want to blame family, friend, the government. You want to whatever it may be. The reality is you got to look in the mirror. I say here, cue the Michael Jackson song the man in the mirror. You got to look at that person and say, okay, as Sam said to me all the time, she goes, "It happened. What are you going to do about it?" So I just pushed on and really pushed on. I, I, I honestly, I also say I don't know what I would have done without her constant nagging. You know, it was very helpful <laughs> to me in many ways. So nagging, um, yeah. So the book came out and it's, it opened the road to speaking engagements for me. Something I never thought I'd be doing. I've been doing now for about eleven years now, and uh it's been a gift, sort of this interesting sideline job. But it's been amazing the response i get from people when i go into the talk of these events um I, I spoke in front of 1600 neurologists down in san diego and i said there's a reason uh, what they call what you do uh, uh, a practice and i don't think they appreciate <laughs> that but i meant that. <laughs> but, but well
0: it- no you know there was a lot of a lot of humility uh, to to go around and it's just a a beautifully written uh beautifully Uh, narrated book as somebody who reads a lot of fiction when I have to dive into these nonfiction books. I'm like, oh gosh, except this was just the kind of book that was a page turner and you couldn't put it down. And like you said, like everybody goes through something. I remember, well, you guys might, when I lost my house back in 2007, we used to be kind of neighbors out here in California. Uh, One thing that guided how I handled it was the idea that every situation can be made worse. Um, In other words, the way you handle one loss of one value can jeopardize your other values, Uh, your job, your relationships, your mental health. True Strength recounts uh, a showdown that you had with Sam in which she challenged you not to take Your anger, and there was a lot of anger about your health situation out on her. Any advice you'd share for those viewers who are dealing with a life-threatening illness or a loss? Lessons you learned over the course of your recovery that they might benefit from.
1: Well, I think patience. I think things changed for me drastically. I mean, I was burning the candle at both ends. I was working 18 hours door to door on Hercules between the drive time being on set 12, 13 hours, 14 hours a day, lifting weights every day, and uh, you know surviving on four hours of sleep over five years. I'm sure that had something to do with something with my health. You can't. You need more than four hours of sleep. I lost the ability to remember any dreams if I had dreams at all because I remember getting home eating a late meal, studying my lines for the next day, going to bed at 12.30, 4.30, the alarm would go off. And to me, it was like two seconds. I mean, I just, boom, would be out. And right away, get up and do it again. Not complaining. I loved being on that show. I loved Hercules. I mean, it actually became the most watched TV show in the world, 176 countries. And it opened the door for me the rest of my life, my career. I'm grateful that uh, the Universal Studios, they didn't do it out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, we were the most watched show in the world was making money. They kept the no. series going. So I went back to do season six. And I went from a 14 hour day down one to two hours a day. So I couldn't do much more. They brought a lot of stunt casting. in. when I say stunt casting, other actors that people know who they are to keep, you know, hopefully keep the show going. But um, it gave me light at the end of a very long and dark tunnel. And I think that's what you need. You have to find hope. And all the negativity that happens in our lives because nobody, you know, God didn't promise you an easy life. So I, for me, it was like, okay, this is here. It's in front of me. I got to push myself to get better now because it would wipe me out. I mean, my brain would get so wiped out just being around people. I, I didn't drive for two years. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't see the cars going by and everything was just, it was too much for my brain to take, but I kept pushing myself. Cause I'm a jock. It was that no, no pain, no gain mentality. So if I wipe my brain out by too much, Stuff coming in, that was a good thing, even though it took me three days to sort of recover again. But I saw little bits, bit, tiny steps of improvement that um, I knew that I was getting better and I knew that I, I would get better. I think people react the same way when bad things happen. You blame God, you blame a God you don't believe in, you blame the world. You know, don't, stop doing that. It happened. It happened. What are you going to do about it? And that's huge. It was huge for me. And it's been huge for people now that have, have read my book. And you talk about audiobooks, when we lived in L.A., we live in Florida now. We left five years ago. When we lived in L.A., Sam and I would listen to audiobooks all the time. I mean, that's the best mm-hmm. place to do it. And when you're stuck in L.A. traffic, LA traffic, <laughs> get something to take your mind off it and have a little learning session of some kind. So they're they're, they're huge to have. But uh, I'll tell you, talk about the fires. You remember in 2018, the fires came through again. Yep. And I was in Indianapolis when Sam called me up and said, the fires are, are starting up again, but they're like 30 miles. I said, okay. I get a call from her at three in the morning, my time. I was in Indianapolis, East Coast time. She says, we have to get out of the house. I said, what? So I go to my computer. I turn on KTLA and I'm watching KTLA show the fires. And I said, put down the streets. And it was my neighborhood in Westlake Village. In three homes in my, I live on a dead, dead end street. Three of the homes completely engulfed in flames. One next to me. I figured my home is my done. Um, I get up the next morning. There's nothing I could do. I had a, I had a speaking event with Steve Green from Hobby Lobby. And I said, I got it. Can I speak first? I got to get out of here. 2,100 people stood up and prayed for my house. I thought, wow, that was like amazing. I get home. Cops wouldn't let me go. I had to go visit. I had to go to the the house. My family's at Simi Valley. I get back the next day. I get to the house. House next to me, gone. The fire came within three feet of our house and went around the house.
0: And yet another reason to be grateful that you have left California because if you uh especially in Malibu and Westlake Village it's not a question of if but when so my piece of advice for anybody who's dealing with a really debilitating health uh challenge is to listen to this audiobook if you're an audiobook fan like myself or get get the book um
1: go to sorbostudios.com I'll send you an autograph copy.
0: All right. Okay. Well, um, we'll put that link in there. And, you know, it was not just about learning about your journey, your career, uh, the amazing achievement of your marriage, uh, and talk about a practice that you guys have continued to work on. But it was also gave a bit of an insight, you know, for some of us who can be a little cynical about Hollywood, how hard people work in that industry and how creative they need to be with production. And um, so that was just kind of an interesting uh, educational opportunity. So speaking of production, let us turn now to your film, The Miracle in East Texas, which uh, as mentioned, it's going to be released in theaters nationwide this coming weekend. It's based on a true story.
1: It is a true story. Uh, It was right in the heart of the depression in 1930 where two con men played by myself and John Ratzenberger, who was amazing in this movie, they would go through Oklahoma and Texas and they would woo widows out of their money on fake oil wells, they would sell 500% of the shares so five times its actual value to clear dry hole go to the next town they get to Kilgore Texas, they strike oil totally by accident ends up being the largest oil find in the history of the world. And, uh, of course, they get arrested because the 500%. They can't pay everybody back. And uh, all the widows that they ripped off find out about. it. They're there for the trial. So the miracle is not only did they find oil, but it's the miracle that happens afterwards, and I don't want to give that part away. But it airs this weekend on Sunday, Monday, the 29th and the 30th of October. If you go to to sorbostudios.com, you can press the link for Miracle East Texas, put your zip code in. It shows you what theater's near you. And we're fathom event. It looks at the $3 million movie. Okay. Hollywood does $300 million movies, right? So we got to compete against that. And they have a hundred million dollar advertising budget. We don't, we got to rely on word of mouth and people stop me all the time and say, I love your movies. What if God's not dead soul surfer, let the be light, make more. I'm making them, but you guys got to support them because theater owners don't care what they show. They want to sell popcorn and sodas. They don't care. So if you help to make this movie a big hit over that Sunday, Monday coming up, we'll get more screening times and days. It's PG rated folks. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, you got John Ratzenberg, you got T- Tyler Maine, who was a WWF fighter. Great guy. You got Lou Gossett Jr. Right here. Lou, Lou's awesome in it. My wife, Sam is in it as well. She kind of steals the movie at the end and the courts, courts. <laughs> but it's a wonderful, wonderful, true PG rated uh, that you can take a whole family to There's no woke stuff in it. It's it's pro America. It's pro freedom. It's pro redemption. It's a wonderful capitalist. Pro capitalist Pro-capitalist <laughs> pro, movie. Pro, pro oil. We're we're educating people on oil. People want to get rid of oil. Then I said, then you better start. You better start living the life of non oil. Get rid of your cell phone. Get rid of your computer. Get rid of a lot of your clothes. Get rid of your toothbrush. Your hair dryer. The, the list goes on and there's hundreds of products. I I I challenge people. Go online after this and look up oil products and you're, you're going to get this massive list. People need to wake up to what the reality and how important oil is. It's a God gift to the the world. So
0: um, I want to appeal to the self-interest of all of the objectivists out there. um, Seeing this movie, not only will you have a great time and really enjoy it, but you will also be demonstrating demand for the kind of content that Kevin and his wife puts out. So... Can three I say million. real quick? Can I say real quick? Yeah. It's
1: won ten film festivals, everything from best comedy to judge's favorite, family favorite. It's won ten different film festivals. It's a good movie,
0: amazing. Um so you know, three million dollar budget., uh, every film production brings its own unique set of challenges. What were some yeah. that you overcame with this film?
1: Um, you know what? We had to put it together so quickly. We were able to get it funded on, on a, once again just like it's, it's got to be a god thing sam and i were speaking at an event out in palm springs and afterwards uh we we're both signing our books and this gentleman walks up Because one of the questions they asked like, how difficult is to fund uh you know independent movies and i said well we don't ask for a lot of money and the movies that we make people make money back um mm-hmm. because we're not you know we're not, we're not having to hollywood if you look at uh a, galaxy quest or whatever they're called those are like they need to make 800 million to break even but they make 2 billion worldwide so they keep making them um we don't have to ha- have that kind of money make it, but he slides across this piece of paper i looked at it and he says can you make a mu- movie out of that and i said yes i can that's mm. how it got funded and we decided we want to do it right away we shot up in canada i know people are going canada's not texas but we used the same <laughs> location we shot in the same working western ranch that Clint Eastwood use an Unforgiven. So if it's good enough for Clint, it's good enough for Kevin Sorbo. I'll tell you that much right now. So I, I you that. get the bigger tax credit. You get a bigger dollar-for-dollar dollar average. And people are unaware. They think everything's shot in Hollywood. Maybe sitcoms are. Most shows are shot in Vancouver, Toronto, Georgia, Louisiana, Oklahoma. I mean, not that much stuff shoots in the state of California. So we shot it up there. And I think the biggest challenge was put it together as quick as we did because we talked to a production company up there that i've worked with before and i said we got to get this ready in three weeks they said what even independent movies are going to take usually six to eight weeks to get everything rolling we got sets built everything within three weeks which was amazing the crew that we had up there is the same crew i did a movie with um about uh gosh how long ago was that one um geez it's probably probably about five years before that one so but it was the same crew that i've I've used before and they were fantastic and i did another movie with them that released in theaters this january that i directed called left behind rise of the antichrist based on the left behind books that jerry jenkins and tim LaHaye did i highly recommend those ones as well but uh it was i think i think that that was the biggest thing was just putting that crew together that quickly and we did it it was amazing
0: So the movie is at once an improbable love story and improbable entrepreneurial success. The story of men overcoming their wayward ways to find integrity, but it's also a story about overcoming uh, racial divides and prejudice. In that respect, it shows how capitalism acts as a force to break down bigotry. Mm -hmm. Your character, Doc Boyd, at one point says, when I see money, I don't see black, I don't see white, I see green, and that's the only color that concerns me. What does that aspect of the film have to teach us today?
1: Well, I think that uh, I, I never even thought about racism until, I'm sorry, I got saved until Obama became president. Uh, he brought it to the forefront again. I, I thought it was, I've got plenty of black friends that I know. And I was just like, isn't it amazing? That I think that we're the country seemed to be going in in a really pretty good direction, and then all of a sudden, through public education, through universities, and through uh, Washington D.C., it became a huge issue again. And every everything was called "that's race." My kids all the time doesn't matter what I say; they say it as a joke, of course. I'll walk in and say, oh, man, I had a horrible day on the golf course. That's racist, Dad. They just say it just to be just to be. Must sad. be the white supremacy. <laughs> oh, must be white supremacy. So it's just they brought it back when, when, to me, it was going away. And it's really sad. It was all done on purpose. I mean, you look at guys like uh, Jackson, you know, Jesse Jackson and uh, Reverend Sharp, Sharpton, whatever the heck his name is, they make their living off of that. They don't want, they, they want to keep it alive. They want to go after companies and say, we're going to come after you and say you're racist unless you give us a million dollars for our foundation. I mean, it's amazing. It's, awesome. what they do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's like total, total blackmail when they do this, not to be meant as a pun. But I mean, it's just weird that we're going through this again. And it's it's unfortunate. This movie shows there certainly was probably more racism back in the 1930 than it was in, going in the world up until the last 10 years. And this shows blacks and whites working together. In fact, there's a scene in there where John Ratzenberger's character says, they said, i never thought I'd see this. Blacks and white working together. Because this oil find brought prosperity to blacks and whites in that community. Capitalism brought prosperity to it. I've worked with actors that's claimed they're socialists and all that. And I said, then you should feel guilty of the money you're making in this industry. You should give a lot of it away. You know, because I don't care what Hollywood says. It's a capitalist business. They can go on their woke crap and they believe in socialism and communism. Uh, behind closed doors, they're capitalists and they know. it. I mean, you look at China. China told a communist government. But when it comes to capitalism, they're a capitalist government.
0: So one of the aspects of the film that I enjoyed and struck me as unusual was that the protagonists were older. And again, this was based on a true story, but the two leading characters, obviously all of the the widows that they had swindled, um, eventually they were finding redemption, finding love in the autumn of their years. Ours is often described as a youth-obsessed Culture. What can the movie tell us about finding purpose and fulfillment after the bloom is off the rose?
1: Well, you know we're 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 a youth world. We're a youth culture. Everything deals with commercials, television, movies. Deals with young, young, young. Stay young as long as you can. And so we all get fa- we fall in the trap. Aging is something that you you can't stop. I mean, it's going to happen. I wish I was still thirty five years old. I'm not, and uh, the mayor's the mirror tells me so. But the reality is. Um, I think in any age of life, it depends on your attitude. If you're going to let fear control your life, you're not going to go anywhere. But if you're going to look at things in a more positive way, you know, bad things, like I said, happen to all of us. And it happens all the time. You've got to find a place. Jimmy Buffett said, may he rest in peace. I was a big fan of his music. He said, you better find humor in everything, because it's going to be a pretty long life for you if you're going to make the bad things that happen to us, because we all have bad things happen, if you let that control your life, because if you're going to live your life just being angry and down and just pissed off at the world, not a great way to live out your life and not a great way to walk and go through life. So to me, you got to find the humor in everything. And that's why I think I like doing humor. There's a lot of humor in this in this movie. People will love it.
0: All right. I'm going to squeeze in a couple of uh questions from the audience, because otherwise, they'll get... Okay. Very pissed off at me. Uh, Rick Robin Kagnan asks, uh, Cole, the Conqueror, big fan here. Have you, Kevin, ventured into voice acting?
1: I have done some voice acting. I wish I could do more, but um, um, I, I did uh, I did a thing called The Conduit. I did God of War 3. Um, I remember I went to, I mean, I, I still get invited to these Comic-Con shows because of Hercules and Andromeda, but there's a thing in Indianapolis called Gen Con, which is all just gamers. And I must have signed 500 of these DVD covers in two days at this at this place. And these guys would walk up to me at the God of War Three and go, Man, you're awesome in this. Sorry I had to kill you at the end, but you're really good at this. So, but <laughs> but um, I would love to do more. I do a lot of narration. I've done a lot of narration for documentaries. I've done about nine documentaries now. I've got I've got two coming out next year. Um I, and ironically, I was just in Israel filming one of them. Um, so that attack could have happened anytime while I was there. But uh, uh, there, there, I, I, I do a lot of voiceover that way, and uh, it's been, it's, it's. I, I enjoy doing it. I just, i have a voice agent, but who knows? You know, maybe there's a, maybe there's a blacklist in Hollywood because I'm, I'm, I'm Christian and a conservative.
0: All right. Uh, speaking of which, my modern galt on Instagram asks, what do you think has been the most difficult thing to deal with since Hollywood decided to? Cancel you, and maybe just talk a little bit about that um, because you are one of the singular voices out there that um, is outspoken about ideas that don't conform to the kind of left woke narrative.
1: Well, you know what's interesting? Hollywood used to be a completely conservative business. You know, the Warner Brothers, former Warner Studios, they were they were Jewish and they were conservative. Um, Hollywood, for the most part, was pretty conservative up until the '60s. Things changed in the '60s. Um, you know, the welfare reform act. we took the Bible out of the school, uh, the hippie movement, free love, rock and roll, Vietnam War, all these things, Hollywood started doing more, more uh, celebration of the anti hero I and mean, the, the rating system <laughs> happened during that time as well. Um, for me, my manager and agent called me in. and said we can't work anymore. This is a dozen years ago and I went what? I said, well, it's going to be hard to get you out there because you're vocal on Facebook. Facebook actually took me down, too, for speaking the truth. Zuckerberg's a wuss, but he doesn't like the truth. But anyway, um, I I, uh, I laughed. I should have been mad about it. But I said, you guys scream for tolerance. You scream for freedom of speech. But, you know, Hollywood is just as hypocritical as, as uh, Washington, D.C. is. You know, they, they say these things, but it's all a one-way street with them. It's our way or the highway. And uh, it's unfortunate. I don't harbor that kind of anger towards people a different point of view. I still have atheist friends, agnostic friends, liberal friends. We have, we give each other a hard time. We have a good, you know, but we're still friends. We go golfing together. We go have a beer. I mean, it's weird that we've gotten to this place because of public education universities where they brainwash these kids to have such an angry attitude towards anybody who's on the right side. And I'm, yeah, yeah.
0: As the only Republican in uh, a family of all Democrats, I guess I learned uh, how to get along with people who have have different points of view very early on. There's a lot more to life than politics. Um, So, Kevin, you're famous for playing these hyper-masculine roles, and one would be hard-pressed, obviously, to find a more masculine character than Hercules Ayn Rand also dramatized even stylized masculine virtues what's going on with this culture in which masculinity is stigmatized as toxic and there seems to be an agenda to make sexuality and gender fluid
1: well i think the feminist movement sort of kicked it off you know about making softer men Uh, i don't understand why we want men to be women and women to be men and have an androgynous society it's not it's you know i don't think most do (laughs) either do i they have that voice to do it but i mean, it's. To me, it's Yeah, like, the vocal minority. You, you look at sitcoms, even going back in the 70s, you look at a lot of the sitcoms. The dad was always kind of chunky out of shape. The mom's a babe. Uh, the kids are smart-ass teenagers, and they're using dad as a target for everything. The dad's a dummy, and an idiot. So kids have been growing up for the last 50 years thinking that the father figure is not that important for the family. When the father figure is equally as important as the mother, it's important for both of them to be around the family. They both, have, they both have equal things that they share, but they also have different things that they're both good for the family as well. And, um, I embrace masculinity. I think it's crazy. This emasculation of, of, of society. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you don't have to be a Dwayne Johnson. Okay. You don't have to be this big, you know, muscle bound person. A strong father is really just a strong man is just somebody that has, that is willing to protect his family, protect, Um, you know, to be a supplier for his family. That's not saying that a woman can't, you know, supply for the family as well. But I mean, I grew up, my dad, my mom raised five kids. She was a nurse, but she raised five kids. I'm the fourth of five. My dad was a school teacher. School teacher salary on seventh and eighth grade kids on on five kids. I don't know how they did it, but they taught us all to be hardworking, to be not expecting handouts, to not give up, to not, today's world, they give up once and it's your fault. Oh my God, it's your fault that I'm this way. So I'm gonna join Antifa and be angry at the world right now. I mean, it's amazing to me that uh, we're letting these punks do what they're doing to businesses and schools and all this kind of stuff. Um I make me president. I can solve a lot of the world problems right now. People call well,
0: it- uh, <laughs> you yeah, you have uh, our endorsement. Um, okay, well, speaking of masculinity, just maybe a word about your newest um the children's book. Uh, a lot of our viewers, a lot of our donors are always just uh really crying out for books that have a positive wholesome message yeah. for kids so tell us a little bit about the genesis of that
1: it's called the test of linehood and uh it came my way through the people brave books but at bravebooks.com get an autographed copy from me join from one year every month to get a new book these are books for like four to twelve year olds and um my book is, is it's about letting kids be kids. I'm, I'm getting attacked by the alphabet crowd and I was saying I'm anti this and anti that. I'm not anti anything. I'm pro kid, I'm pro child, that's what I am. It's a simple little story about Lucas the lion cub. Lucas is out playing in the woods with his two little sisters. She gets cut by a plant that he knows is a very dangerous plant that she'll die if she doesn't get the treatment for it. He's too far away from home. He's closer to the mountain that has the flower that his father told him will save his little sister's life. So he's got to get—he's got to get past his insecurities and fears and and roadblocks and find a way to man up a little bit and get out there. This book is nothing uh, anti anything. Like I said, this book is just a wonderful kid story about finding your own uh, battle against fear because we all can have fear in our lives. But don't you know fear is government's favorite weapon? You know they used it—they use it amazingly and uh, during COVID, didn't they? So, oh, yeah. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, fun book. Um, if you remember last year, Kirk Cameron had a book out with Ly- with Brave Book as well. They wouldn't let him re- read at public libraries. They were okay with drag queens reading to seven-year-olds, but apparently Kirk Cameron is too scary for seven-year-olds. It's just this whole, once again, this cancel culture. I want to meet these people. I would like to meet all the cancel culture people because obviously they have led amazingly perfect and sin-free lives. These are amazing, amazing people that have nothing to be embarrassed about in their lives. So I'm sorry, that's sarcasm if you didn't get it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, um, again, just where do I'm sure a lot of people, including yours truly, are going to want to get those autographed books? So, we go to tell us where
1: sorbostudios.com. They can go there to get the book, sorbostudios.com. Plus, they can get the movie tickets right now for Miracle in East Texas.
0: Well, folks, uh, you are not going to want to miss this movie. It's spectacular. Um, just briefly, what's next for you and Sam?
1: Um, we've been doing a lot of speaking events. I just got back from Grand Rapids speaking up there. I do about 15 speaking events a year. Um, we got a waiver for two movies coming up that I'm doing. So I'm shooting a movie in uh, Flint, Michigan, and another one in, uh, Fort Worth. I'm doing a Christmas movie there. The one in Flint, Michigan is a true story about a woman that was in uh, stage four breast cancer and still wanted to carry her baby to full term. Um, it's a, a very wonderful, touching story. Um, I've got two documentaries that are almost complete that will be out next year. And one's called The Quest for the Throne, dealing with the, uh, uh, through archaeological digs in Israel, we trace the flow of the Ark of the Covenant. So I was really Indiana Jones. And um, Mm -hmm. then I got the other one called Eating with the Enemy, um, which deals with the Last Supper that's coming out at Easter. And it's a pretty amazing documentary on that. And I've got four of the movies in post-production. And I've got another documentary. I start in January. So I'm staying busy.
0: Uh, plus, a lot of other uh, interviews, uh, even later than this one for you there. I do. I on have the- three more today. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So just best way to keep track of you.
1: SorboStudios.com. Best place to go.
0: Newsletter. Can yeah, sign up and- so
1: you can sign up there. My wife is on that same site with me. You can go to her side of it or go to my side of it or both sides of it. She has a lot of great books as well. She's got a wonderful book called Words for Warriors. I think you'll I know,
0: I've read it. We we had her on to talk about it. Very cool. All right, well, thank you, Kevin. And um, thanks all of you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this video or any of our other materials and programs, please consider making a tax deductible donation to the Atlas Society at atlassociety.org. And join us next week when Jim is going to join us to talk about his new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. I'll see you then.